Content warning. Racism, colonialism, sexism, orientalism, war, mass murder, rape, fascism, cometary destruction, and lots of socialist politics. We also have to apologize for some sound issues with Jess's track, including a bit where he sounds demonically possessed. Sorry. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! Tonight that spark was to be shaken from the torch of revolution, and tomorrow the first of the mines would explode. The armies of Europe would fight their way through the greatest war that the world had ever seen. The 1870s were a time of tumult for Europe. In 1871 Paris was seized by a communist revolt, as commemorated by Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, and although the commune was eventually crushed, the European monarchies started seriously taking steps to quell a socialist uprising. A series of treaties negotiated in large part by German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck brought the newly forged German Empire into an alliance with Austria-Hungary as a bulwark against France and Russia. The usually war-torn monarchies of Europe settled in for several decades of peace under the new arrangement, but discontent was brewing, and the clear-sighted foresaw an eventual conflict that would plunge the continent and probably the whole world into brutal conflict. The scientifically inclined looked toward another possible threat. The inventions of heavier-than-air flying machines, and thus, the potential for aerial combat and bombardment. Though others thought that the invention of such a device might mean an end to war by an early version of the Mutually Assured Destruction Doctrine. One such was George Griffith, a British sci-fi writer, whose work had a tremendous impact on the pop-cultural trope of the airship, both then and now, and whose book, Angel of the Revolution, eerily prefigured the real-world events that would sweep through Europe a few decades later. Hi, I'm Adam Prosser. With me is Phil Rice. Hi. And welcome to What Mad Universe. Yes, welcome aboard. Um, once again, we're joined by our uh, archivist extraordinaire, Jess Nevins. Hi, Jess. Hi. Hi. We're uh, so today we're discussing a book uh, which uh, Phil uh, has unearthed called uh, "Angel of the Revolution," which. Um, is a really notable book uh, that seems to have had quite an impact on the idea of uh, the airship, both in sort of turn of the century fiction and even up until the modern day, where we look back at sort of steampunkery, uh, <laughs> flying airships and so on. Um, and on top of that, it's a uh, very politically charged book that uh, actually foreshadows a lot of stuff that really happened in the real world. Um, <clears throat> no, it also gets a bunch wrong. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Well, it's funny because even when it gets something wrong, it does it in a way that's a little bit eerie <laughs> because it gets it exactly wrong in a way. Yeah, that... like um, just for an example, there, there's a world war that breaks out in the book, and uh, 
the British side with the Germans against the French. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah. the opposite of well, what as, actually happened. Right. Exactly. It's well as 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 we were uh, as I was pointing out at the beginning. Um, at that point, the treaties of Europe, when, at the time when the books was written, uh, made it seem like. I mean, those were the alliances that were going to form, which were uh, Austria-Hungary, Germany, uh, France, and Russia. Uh, the, the basically the thing he got wrong was that Britain Britain would side with France and in real life Britain sided with France and Russia, whereas he predicted they would side with uh, Germany. Um, but otherwise, that is more or less the conflict that uh, hit with World War One, um, and a decade after he predicted it, uh, Griffiths. But and there um, was also a uh, socialist revolution during World War One in Russia. Right, right, and then it deals. Well, uh, Phil, why don't you just quickly describe the uh, the plot of the book here? Um, all right. Well, it's uh, it takes place in the uh, near future of uh, uh, 1903. Um, book was a, written in uh, 1892, by the way. Yeah. Um, the um, a uh, inventor named Richard Arnold. Uh, solves the problem of uh, uh, heavier-than-air travel, so he invents an airship, basically, or a miniature version of one. But uh, yeah, he doesn't really have anything to do with it. I mean, uh, to do with the... Uh... Well, he's, he's, he's actually gone broke developing this, and he's sort of living in yeah misery and poverty. And uh, he doesn't have any way out of his financial problems. Um, and he runs into a, uh, a, another British man named Alan Tremaine, uh, who uh, turns out is a member of a, uh, he's a British politician, but it turns out he's a secret member of a um, underground revolutionary group called the Terrorists, or the Brotherhood of Freedom. And um, uh, they come up with a, uh, a plan to use the, uh, the airship, um, or the, the idea of the airship, uh, in a um, uh, conflict that would take over the world for... Uh, basically socialism right and yeah so from there sort it's, of. yeah sort of yeah i i can't remember did they actually even use the word socialism in this book? yeah yeah know? uh tremaine describes himself as a socialist uh initially right um and there's definitely um i mean they uh at the end they um when they're successful spoiler alert um, <laughs> it's okay <laughs> uh they um uh do um abolish landlords and heavily tax rich people so right there, there's it is sort of but there's there, there are a lot of differences as well yeah i mean the way it finally shakes out at the end he describes the the system of government they set up and it actually doesn't seem anywhere near as extreme as what a lot of socialists then and now uh would have suggested you know because there's still rich people they're just paying a higher progressive tax rate essentially and they've abolished uh like land ownership and stuff but yeah um it's interesting in that way now um there's also uh some race race issues which we'll get into yeah yeah there's there the, his his specific view uh is is sort of uh un, well not maybe not unique but it, it's not what how we would a modern day socialist would think of it necessarily uh now uh, I want to ask uh, Jess um, if I recall correctly, um, it, it, in your uh, notes for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, you wrote something about um, how uh, people at the uh, turn of the century were really thinking about aerial bombardment and heavier than air flight as this sort of apocalyptic weapon that might be employed, um, and. Um, 
that that was really on everyone's mind. Um, how does this uh, tie into this this book? Well, it it's one of the biggest treatments of the theme that the English-speaking audience had so far seen. There were versions of the Death from Above narrative uh, going back to 1870, but nobody had done it really on the level of Wells, or uh, Griffith, excuse me. So uh, they nobody had seen it done on the level of... Um, Griffith, yet at the time he was uh, regarded not just as Wells's H.E. Wells's rival, but uh, in some respects he was seen as Wells's superior. So he's he's uh, he didn't exactly create it, but he certainly popularized it to a degree that. Um, b- narratives like the Coming Race and Rover the Conqueror had not. Um, There were, but again, there were narratives about the future war and destruction caused by uh, all that conflict, by aerial conflict, um, going back to 1870 with a Danish novel called Memoir, from the Memoirs of the the ship Prometheus by Wilhelm Bergso. <laughs> and that that talks about a future war and um, all that fun stuff. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 certainly um, uh, yeah, that's what I'm talking. It was on people's minds at the time, right? It was it right, was sort yeah. Of a, a preoccupation. Well, they they were very air obsessed at the time and uh everyone knew that flight was coming just a matter of when and a lot of the theorists of war had been talking about um what was going to happen when when people get to the air um and so they naturally thought about it in terms of war and then in terms of how Great Britain would no longer be separated from the continent by the right. English Channel. So, especially for Griffith's audience, um, air war was a pretty imminent concern, and in a way, uh, Angel of the Revolution touches some of their exposed nerves. Yeah, th- that's kind of what it felt like they, he was doing. Like he was trying to, <laughs> trying to sort of really put on the table a lot of the things people were worried might happen. Except he did it in in a way where I assume Griffith, Griffith saw as the good guys uh, getting a hold of this uh, this mega weaponry and using it to to fix everything, basically. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. He's he's writing his political sentiments but also his political biases. I mean, Griffith didn't like Americans. And so America comes off bad novel and yeah. um, there were pretty much, the U.S. is pretty much irrelevant in the novel. He hated the Russian government and was very much on the side of the Russian people. And so he's, he's, he's expressing his political sentiments. You can also see a sort of expression of the uh, imperial anxieties of the era, again, 
the Great Britain no longer being isolated and needing allies that it may not be able to depend on, and so right. on and so forth. Well, that's actually interesting because fairly early on, they they he calls out uh, the the Russian czar as the greatest enemy of mankind. I think he says, um, <laughs> and like he he's he's very specifically anti the Russians are. I mean, he doesn't like the monarchs in general, but he, it seems like he, he seemed to... Is, is Was that a common view at the time, that the Russian czar was particularly bad compared to the rest of Europe? Or uh, From what I've read, uh, this particular guy, it was a real person that uh, was put in the place of the czar in the book. Um, apparently he wasn't that bad in real life, so this was a bit well, of an exaggeration. Right, it's Nicholas II, who was the actual czar who was overthrown by by the Russian Revolution. Oh, okay. I was, I was wrong then. Sorry, I was... Nicholas took over literally a year after this was published. So he was the heir to the throne at the time, right? So they knew he was going to be the next czar. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it depends what you mean by he was an okay guy or not, because, I mean, there's a reason they revolted against him, I would say. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, that, I, uh, I was mistaken. No, the, the Russians were seen pretty universally as barbaric and their treatment of the serfs were was uh something that just about every your every european nation thought was just horrible uh you can see a sort of racism there in that the mm. the europeans don't mind doing to the rest of the world what is being done what to the, the white serfs, but um, there was a real outcry toward the general treatment of the serfs. You can see it recurring through liter popular literature in the 1880s, 1890s. The, there's comments in all sorts of books about uh, Russian spies being notably brutal, um, the Russian Navy commanders being drunk all the time, that sort of thing. Mm. But yeah, the yeah, Russians it, it, were generally seen as the bad guys at that point. Right. Well, it, it's certainly true that they still had, they they weren't that far off from a feudal system, whereas the rest of Europe was, I mean, a little more advanced than that, even though they still had kings and queens. Um, and, and I know that, uh, you know, they had all the stuff that we think of, we associate with Russia. <laughs> I know they had, you know, secret police who were running around, you know, who were secretly spying on people and reporting back, you know, anyone who badmouthed the czar. And I know they had, you know, of course, they had the work camps in Siberia, which feature heavily in this novel, um, and, and just general, you know, oppression. Um, and so, so that, you know, clearly there was, it, 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 he had the pulse of the time. Uh, you know, I don't think this was luck. I think it, I think he knew <laughs> that people really didn't like the Russian uh, the Russian uh, government. So it's just interesting that because that is, of course, where a socialist revolution was eventually fomented in Europe. That he he identified that as the place that was going to be uh, the target, as as we've pointed out. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the character uh, Natas, who's the leader of the Brotherhood or the terrorists, um, uh, his origin is in as a he was a Russian Jew who was persecuted by the. Uh, um, Russian monarchy basically and his his wife was killed and right so forth and so um this whole book is basically his revenge on on the czar yeah he's he's pretty um 
it, it's a, it's a pretty in some ways it's a bloodthirsty book because you keep you keep expecting Natas to be revealed as you know oh yeah he's he's overthrowing these bad guys but he himself is you know secretly a monster and they never really they they even oh, no, reveal they don't the, yeah the the uh, the sequel definitely uh, this works out well for at least a hundred years so. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's we can talk about the sequel in a moment, but yeah, it's it it's interesting. They even introduced the fact that he's got like a burned face, which I mean, I read that as like a metaphor for ah, he's secretly got a you know a a, a horrific side that'll come out, and it does. I mean, he's they slaughter a lot of people in the final battle, uh, but at no point is it sort of passed as <laughs> oh yeah, this is these are these guys are bad. They've They've uh, they've committed these atrocities, and there was a an irony there. It was just like, no, this is what the good guys had to do to win and create a better world. Basically, um, it, it's very strange in that regard. Um, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm misreading it, but I read it as there wasn't a lot of judgment on them for for. Do, do you guys agree with me? Do you think I'm right? Yeah, I I, I would say that when Natas was introduced in the book, I I thought, oh, so they're going with the. Uh you know, evil revolutionary as well. Like both sides are just as bad sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, which, you know, to be fair, the Soviet union did not work out well. So, yeah. you know, but, um, that doesn't, that's not the direction the book went in at all, which was uh, sort of interesting. Yeah. And, and actually, um, uh, Jess, I did want to ask you something. Um, the, you know, the fact that they very openly call themselves terrorists now was that, and and they they use it in the book as if it's this, I, I don't know, almost a neologism when he used it at the time. Is that the case, or is that well, something else? Well, no, the terrorism and terrorist wasn't used as widely. Um, I I I'd like to do a. I'd want to do a word search in some of the old newspaper databases to see when it started. Um, most terrorist organizations weren't multinational at that point, so they identified by nationality. The biggest one were the F Irish Fenians. I am having a hard time thinking of. Well, there were there was a general anti-government, anti-royalty um, movement, but it wasn't. They weren't a linked organization. So uh, right. the, the ones who killed the Russian princess in 1895, I think, were just called anarchists rather than anything. Terrorists, in, in this sense, is a more recent neologism, more recent application of the word. Right. Well, and, uh, we noticed they use the word nihilists a lot, too. Yes. Um, uh, that came up in... Uh... Saturn and Ferendel, and I thought that was a joke there, but apparently it was a term used for, to describe anarchists or something. I mean, it's clearly a, a, a an ideology, but I just didn't ever think of them as being really organized and you know yeah, committing. There was, there was a guy named Ser, Sergei or Sergei Sergei Necheyev who wrote, um, oh God, it was uh, Catechism of a Revolutionary, I think. And it basically sets out the rationale for nihilistic revolution. Uh, nihilism was a thing in nihilistic revolutionaries 
and anarchists were a thing in real life and in fiction of the time. So calling themselves nihilists is playing to, playing to the audience, but also sort of upending expectations. You know, they were conditioned to think of the nihilists as the bad guys, but here they are, Griffith saying, well, we're, they're actually the good guys. Hi, here's the uh, the weird port where Jess's mic went a little weird for a second. In a bizarrely appropriate moment. Okay, there's a quote from... Thrones must be emptied by assassination. Palaces wrecked. Wealth must shudder in its bed of doom. First individuals, then the sordid oppressors of the poor. Last, the whole... So they they pretty much want to overthrow everything, replace it with nothing. So, so really, it was like not even anarchy then, just what a state of barbarism, or like what? <laughs> well, when you say yeah, the the they were never they were a lot more clear on what needed to be done than what would happen when you got there. Um, right, but. Presumably, there would people would live in peace with each other once the capitalist oppressor running dogs were done away with. Okay. All right. I'll say it, it, it's not too hard to see why that didn't catch on, but <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Um, but that is uh, that is interesting. Like I say, as Phil said, when we encountered it in uh, Saturday Ferrandel, we. We almost thought that was meant as a joke, like they were standing in for socialist and, and anarchist and, uh, you know, Marxist movements, and they just said nihilists instead. Because, again, as I say, I know it was a philosophy, but I just didn't think of it as an organized political movement. So that's that's kind of interesting. I noticed that um, there's a bit of a creepy <laughs> racial aspect, as Phil brought up. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. More than a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, in the sense that it's arguing, you know, it's using the language of sort of socialist revolution, but it's also very intent on, well, the Anglo-Saxon race, essentially. Yeah, the um, the good guys form the Anglo-Saxon Federation, so that's... Right, and that's it's very specifically, we're the genius race of the human, you know, human civilization, and we must be over even not not even talking about like white people he's talking about like beating the gallic i.e. french and the russian you know race basically but then at the same time of course um you know natasha the actual angel of the revolution and natas himself uh are russian jewish uh and they are the leaders of the the revolution so it's it's a bit weird in what it's saying <laughs> um and there's also there's also a bit where he talks about uh how uh, we need to unite uh, the the English speaking world because the uh, on our doorstep are a bunch of you know right. Asian people who are going to attack any day now. Yeah, yeah, they're they're almost an after. But the first of all, while all this is happening, apparently there's a war between the uh, the Buddhists and the Muslims going on in the east, uh, which the Muslims win and then come to invade Europe, and then they're taking Dioda as in like two pages as an afterthought. Uh, they're, they're a bigger thing in the sequel, though. Okay. Bigger. Well, what? Okay, tell me about the sequel then. I, I actually did not get around to reading the sequel, so uh, what, what happens? In uh, that? It goes in some weird directions. Um, it's set 130 years after the first book. Mm -hmm. So, in the year 2030, so even the future for us, um, it, there's been um, 130 years of peace. Uh, basically, everything's great. Um, mm -hmm. 
but uh, uh, the last surviving uh, member of the Russian royal family, uh, or the last two, rather, uh, it's a brother and sister at the beginning, uh, but the sister is Olga Romanov, who's um, mm. uh, directly descended from, from the last Tsar, and uh, she uh, basically thinks she was robbed of her inheritance, and she wants to take the world back, and uh, does so through various duplicitous means, gets, a, gets uh, access to airship technology, and uh, eventually um, uh, allies with the uh, uh, um, uh, Sultan of uh, Islam, as he's called, uh, Khaled, um, <laughs> who's more of a sympathetic character than I was expecting in this, considering the, the weird racial comments in the first book. He's still a villain, but he's more of an honorable villain, I suppose. Olga Romanov is just, you know, a straight-up evil sky witch, basically. Okay. Um, but yeah, the um, something we didn't mention in the first book. Uh, they, it's it's not treated as much of a thing in the first book. It's just sort of their home base. But they establish a colony in a in a unpopulated African area. Right. Uh, that they call area. It's only accessible by um, airship because it's surrounded by impassable mountains. Um, and it's in uh, Central Africa. So this is sort of like a white Wakanda, I suppose. Um, <laughs> To contrast with last last episode, but um, um, this uh, by the sequel is uh, uh, built up into a proper sort of small country, and uh, they're sort of the rulers of the world, and they're given um, once again very racialized. You know, they're they're like the highest achievement, the highest race on earth, basically, and they that is immediately apparent from just looking at them, apparently. So. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's, that's a thing. That, they wear wings on their. They wear uh, a coronet with uh, golden wings on it, uh, and they they just sort of basically they're they're a perfect utopia civilization by this point. So, but but um, they're, but they're ruling over other nations as this. Group. Uh, yeah, but it's like a soft rule. Um, like they allow them to. Um, they just basically uh, make sure nobody develops airships, so they have control over the skies, so that war can't happen. Right. Yeah, that's uh, something so, that that it, it kind of seemed implausible even in the first book that nobody was. Of course, there is a big plot about you know the Russians trying to to get hold of one of the airships, and they and they do because of traitors. Uh, but it gets it gets stopped very quickly, and nobody's able to repl replicate the the means to build their own airships and <laughs> that like they're able to keep everyone quiet. Like when they overthrow uh, America, they're able to keep that quiet for a while. You know, the Muslims have no idea what's happening in Europe up until they're invaded uh, or up until the Muslims invade. Like there's a, there's a real uh, damper on communication in the world <laughs> of the well, first before book. the internet. Yeah, of course. But I think even then, I think it, it's a little implausible <laughs> that there'd be no one to even, you know, walk out of, Europe and say, hey, you know what's going on in Europe? Some crazy stuff, you know. But, and I uh, the idea established at the beginning of the sequel is that they they actively like will bomb anywhere that even comes close to uh, creating air travel. So right, great, w wonderful so world of their... peace there uh, that they've built. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I've heard it uh, described as uh, Pax uh, Aeronautica. Yes, that's right. Jess, did you have any um, thoughts on the sequel? Uh, have, are... Oh, uh, I, I just had one more thing to say. Okay. The sequel goes in some very bizarre directions because the first book is uh, fairly, not, not hard sci-fi necessarily, but it's like um, 
right. plausible for most of it, except for a brief bit where Natas has like psychic powers for some reason. <laughs> um, but the 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 sequel goes all in on that sort of thing. There's there they have real technology, uh, which is alluded to and then seen briefly. Oh, do they um, call it real technology? It, not technology, but yeah, they have at, they've created real. They they mentioned the coming race by name. Oh, the novel, <laughs> and said they've pretty much achieved all of that stuff. Yeah. which they haven't quite, but they they do have uh, they their rapiers can shoot out blue energy bolts and they can huh. disable guns and things. So huh. that's a thing. Uh, huh. There's also um, uh, Olga Romanoff. Um, gets control of the airship uh, in the first place because she has a mind control potion <laughs> uh, that she uh, uh, uses to uh, uh, bewitch the uh, the two sort of main characters. Um, these books aren't really high on character development for the most part, though yeah. Olga actually is a pretty interesting villain protagonist of the book. But otherwise, it's they're sort of flat characters, and it's more of a plot-driven thing. Yeah, but uh, Alan Ar- Arnold uh, is uh, pretty much the main character of the uh, of the sequel. He's the descendant of Richard Arnold uh, from the okay. first book. All right, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, but he gets uh, uh, bewitched by uh, Olga using uh, mind control potion that she's uh, that she's discovered, and um, it's implied that she rapes him repeatedly because uh, he becomes her lover and like she's you know. That's, there's no consent there. Um, that's only implied, cool. though, but uh, it's heavily implied, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, she uh, uh, is basically pure evil with, um, up until the very end when she starts feeling some regrets. But um, uh, she, uh, um, after getting access to the airship, um, she starts putting together a uh, uh, an international... Counter Brotherhood, I guess, uh, composed of uh, former uh, people who would have been rich, and if not for the uh, New World Order, and uh, former monarchs and things like that. Huh. Um, and does she succeed so, in taking over the brother, like the world, or is it? Um, she definitely challenges it. Um, uh, but uh, a comet comes and destroys everything. <laughs> a real That's Deus Ex Machina there. Yeah, well, not quite. It's it's set up like it, it's coming for a while. It's not like it just comes in the last chapter. It's right. known about, but she denies that it's happening. But so the uh, the people of Area, the Arians, which is an unfortunate term. It's spelled differently, but you know, yeah, it's not yeah. like right. racial Arians. It's a a e r i a n right. Sort of thing. Though it's got a racial element to it too. But anyway, yeah. Um, so uh, Olga ends up uh, allying with the uh, with the Sultan of Islam, yes, who has ruled over the entire Islamic world. Uh, she converts to Islam, uh, at least in um, in appearance. Like she does, she doesn't believe in anything but her own power, basically. But she's willing to do anything. She's willing to forcibly convert all of Russia into uh, uh, into Muslims as well. Huh. Uh, like like I said, the the Sultan is is more sympathetic than she is. Uh, he's sort of an honorable person who keeps his word. She doesn't, right. um, uh, which is interesting. Hmm. Uh, he's still very 
stereotyped in a lot of ways. Like they described his Oriental way of speaking and all that stuff. But right, uh, right. It, he's not. Yeah, as... no. There's definitely in the first book as well. Like and and because Russia is sort of the Eastern Empire, I think there was a suspicion there that it was a little bit. You know, it it was it was other than Europe. It was it was a bit foreign. It was it was it had that Asiatic air to it, just the same way that you know the the Muslims and the Turk Turks would have at the time, and and then eventually the Buddhists, who he does mention. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, oh, um, I forgot to mention uh, the Aryans are also in communication with Mars, so that's a thing. Okay, does Mars play yeah. a role in the story uh, at all? They they are the ones who um, uh, discover the comet that's coming i see so the comet comes and, and just yeah it's um just... it's going to come in a few months uh and uh so the Aryans withdraw from the from the battles that are happening uh -huh. in order to prepare you know a sort of uh uh bunkers yeah. but is it is... Uh, under under their mountains so they can have some people who survive uh. but uh, olga refuses to believe that the comet's coming and it's just a, a huh. trick and uh, but she ends up pretty much scorching the earth before the comet comes. So jeez, it, it's yeah, so it's, it's um kind of downbeat compared to what happens at the end of the first book. Yeah. So at, at the end, uh, she uh, manages to live. She runs away at the last minute back to her home base and manages to survive the destruction of the earth. And uh, the main characters go after her, but by that point, she's um uh gone mad basically. And is is remorseful finally. Wow, well, sorry. What's the the title? Is Siren of the? Uh, it it was originally uh, serialized as Siren of the Skies, but published as a book as Olga Romanoff. Okay, Siren of the Skies. She's essentially um, the main character, like the the villain protagonist. She has the most right sort of yeah, yeah. screen time or page time or whatever you want to call it. Right. Which is interesting because uh, uh, the first. Let's, oh, sorry. let's hear what Jess has to say about the sequel now we have to heard from Well, it's, um, it, it's interesting to me in a number of respects because it's just so... Uh, out there's the wrong, wrong word for it. Uh, it's very imaginative. Uh, Griffith just went as... He took the premise as far as he could go. Uh, and in in a way that a lot of fiction of the time didn't. What's interesting to me most about Olga Romanoff is Olga Romanoff herself. She's one of the first real female mad scientists, and she. I mean, there were there was sort of a tradition of female mad scientists before Olga Romanoff, but. She's one of the big ones to to appear in the late Victorian era, and in that respect was influential not just on female mad scientists, but on male mad scientists as well. So that's yeah. that's what always leaps out at me about Olga Romanoff. Yeah, I mean, now that I think about it, isn't that similar to the backstory for uh, Fu Manchu and those characters where they, they were royalty, they believe they're descended from royalty and they want to reclaim the throne and, you know, a century later? Uh, yeah. Do you think they might have got that from this book at all? Or do you think well, that might be just that, part of it? That's, that's sort of a, a standard plot trope. I, okay. I, I mean, Sax Romer... I, I'm not sure where he got all his ideas from, but I, I wouldn't... 
George Griffith was pretty well known up until he died in 05. And then I'm not sure how quickly he was forgotten about, but he was forgotten fairly quickly. But I wouldn't be surprised if Saxormer had read Griffith, but the wanting to take back the throne, that, that, that goes back at least to the Gothics. Right. That's, yeah, true. Although I, I just, I feel like in the Gothics, I mean, and again, maybe I'm wrong in my conception here. I feel like in those cases, it's, it's a little bit different than literally a mad scientist going, yes, I have an ancient, you know, line that goes back centuries as opposed to just, oh yeah, I, you know, my, my father was killed and I was smuggled out of the palace as a baby. This is like, no, I go back hundreds of years and now I'm a mad scientist who wants to conquer the world. Basically seems like a slight difference to me. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of male mad scientists with that. Well, actually, even um, Blofeld and James Bond has a bit of that, right? Because he he believes he's an eight, he he has a claim to nobility, and he's trying to take over the world. Uh, yeah, that's introduced a bit later, but yeah, that's true. I, I just it it, inter- it it just seems like an interesting trope to me. This the villain needs to insist that they have a you know a history of monarchy in their family without necessarily having a personal attachment to it. Just I look at my my ancestry and I'm a <laughs> and I'm in, I'm entitled to rule the world basically. Kind of an interesting wrinkle to it. Another aspect of it, Olga Romanoff, that's interesting to me is how it's a reaction to the feminism of the time, um, even more than Angel of the Revolution, where na- um, the, the, the angel is, she's both sort of a feminist and because she won't get married until the revolution comes, so she sets the terms of the relationship, but she settles down to become a good wife when that happens, whereas the the fears of the new woman as they were called in the 1890s were that they were going to reject marriage altogether and not just become intellectual rivals but uh emotional superiors and uh yeah uh definitely there's a there's a long there's a large strain of anti-feminism in the in the second book there's a um a bit about uh, the Aryans um, banned uh, women from British Parliament um, while it was going on, and as soon as they uh, sort of stepped down from power at the at the end of the century um, and uh, allow a more hands-off approach, British Parliament uh, elects a half half a female uh, Parliament or Senate. I think it was uh, replaced with a Senate in the uh, in the book, but yeah, half female, uh, and uh, it's apparently cause complete gridlock and <laughs> problems that can't be overcome because everybody's bickering all the time. Huh. So that's a thing. Well, that's interesting because I'd say, yeah, like um, uh, Natasha, who is the titular angel of the revolution in the first book, she comes off as pretty uh, strong. She gets a great moment where she's uh, supposedly going to be married off to this one leader of the, the resistance, but they found out that he's uh, been conspiring against them and she literally shows up as as if she's her his, she's going to be his bride and says oh by the way I'm here to execute you instead and kills him and it's a real like it's she's it's a real badass moment uh, for her like that's really the main thing that she does other than just sort of being the prize for uh, for uh, uh, 
for the hero to win in the first book. Um, yeah, she's largely a figurehead. Uh, Olga Romanov has much more, um, uh, drives the plot a lot more in the second book. Yeah, I was. Or, I mean, she completely drives the plot. When when they introduce Natasha and Angel of the Revolution as you know, oh by the way, this is the daughter of our mysterious founder Natas, who's the one who pulls the strings. She's just his daughter. I was actually expecting a twist where it's like, no, she's the one running the whole thing, and <laughs> and Natas is just a, a person she talks about as you know as the the power, but she's the real power behind the throne the whole time, basically. Uh, but that's not what happened, obviously. Uh, but it's it really yeah, feels. I didn't think the Victorians would go in that direction. Well, I, I, but again, though, if he's a socialist writing all this stuff. You know, you kind of tend to think that maybe he's got more of an uh, of a of a uh, uh, you know an attitude towards you know equality. And again, as the, as we've seen, the book is a weird attitude of yeah, social like economic socialism, but there's a a bit of a racial you know uh, you know it's very it's it's very af affectionate towards England as like the superior country, even though. You know, as a socialist, they ought to be, and, and even as described in the book, they ought to be smashing all the different countries of the world and turning it into a world state. But he's still kind of like, yes, but England, England must prevail. Good old England. Even as he's criticizing, you know, the king of England and everything, he's saying, you know, England as a country is still the best, essentially. Um, I, I do want to actually read the bit here uh, about... Uh, America, as as uh, Jess was saying, he doesn't seem to like <laughs> America very much, and uh, he describes America at the time um, <clears throat> as follows. Representative government in America had by this time become a complete sham. The whole political machinery and internal resources of, this, of the United States were now virtually at the command of a great ring of capitalists who, through the medium of the huge monopolies which they controlled, and the enormous sums of money at their command, held the country in the hollow of their hand. These men were as totally devoid of all feeling or public sentiment as it was possible for human beings to be. They had grown rich in virtue of their contempt of every principle of justice and mercy, and they had no other object in life than to still further increase their gigantic hordes of wealth and to multiply the enormous powers which they already wielded. And so, you know, that definitely sounds like socialist rhetoric, Marxist rhetoric, essentially. Um, oh, yeah, and there's there's a, just a revolution in America that happens overnight. Yeah, it happens really fast. <laughs> like, they, they're able to... And, I mean, that's partly because this whole uh, operation has been, you know, moving itself into position for, you know, who knows how long, years, maybe even decades. Yeah, they, they have sleeper agents in everywhere. But. Yeah. It still it still seems a little ridiculous at yeah. that plot point. Well, like I say, it's it's Griffith going well, who is British going well. Britain is the crucial point for all of this, you know. Even though America would be, you know, well, I, I mean to be fair, World War One, Britain was fairly crucial. But um, you know, it, it's it's cultural chauvinism essentially saying that you know Britain has got to be the centerpiece of the story. I assume you know he was writing it for a British audience and everything. Um, uh, from what I've read, his work didn't get picked up much in America because probably because of his socialist views, or mm. um, uh, so he was. He was more influential in his home country. Um, right. I know um, Michael Moorcock cites him as an influence for uh, right. the early development of steampunk and yeah, and it's that sort of thing. It's actually interesting. Uh, it's mentioned a few people mentioned this online, and I did notice this. If you're familiar with H.G. Wells's uh, Things to Come. Um, there is definitely an echo of, uh, of this book in Things to Come, which also has, uh, you know, a, a catastrophic conflict and then a, a benign order arising out of, 
you know, the scientific geniuses who cr it's it's a the order's reversed a bit, but it's it's um it's the idea of there'll be an apocalyptic conflict and then you know the geniuses will arise. Okay, so the film was written by H.G. Wells. That's what it is. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's why I'm confused. It wasn't a novel. It was a book. It was a it was a movie written by H.G. Wells. Um, but it does describe the same idea of yeah, there's going to be a you know an, an apocalyptic war that's going to come and humans are going to bounce back through. <laughs> he says science fascism in the. <laughs> in the movie which is pretty creepy uh again there's there's you see a lot of ideas being tossed around rather naively by people you know you wouldn't associate with you know socialism and 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 you know a left-wing viewpoint that kind of in the real world led to some bad stuff <laughs> yeah come to think of it wells himself was he was left-wing but he was also a eugenicist so, right yeah, yeah. Uh, often we think of uh of anti-racism on the left but uh yeah, it wasn't always the case. There's yeah, I mean even there's unfortunate histories and yeah. all over the place. Right, I mean even Karl Marx uh, was criticized later as you know not thinking out, he being very Eurocentric in his mindset. Uh, in in uh, in Angel of the Revolution, you know it's it's telling that they land on um, you know this they find a continent in Africa and they or a, a lost land in Africa and they make it their own and there's there's no thought at all to like. The resident. They don't even have like a negative portrayal of the residents of Africa. They don't really there portray aren't them. any revenants. Yeah, there's it's it, yeah, it's an empty con continent as far as he's concerned, basically. And as we say, the Muslim. He does mention the the Buddhists as being a massive, like you know, the East. There's all these Buddhists out there. He says at one point, uh, one in four men on Earth are Buddhists. Uh, but he, you know, he doesn't think much of countries outside of the Europe, and even America gets a very brief. <laughs> not essentially so um you know it's a very uh, chauvinistic story basically yeah like i said the uh the islamic stuff in the sequel is is uh it's like i've seen things to, out today that are more racist against muslims than this was but it's still pretty racist yeah that's not saying much but um yeah uh, um well it is interesting but, uh, people have said that in the 19th century they had you know they had, people weren't they were leery of of the Islamic uh, you know societies, but they didn't have the same kind of you know outwardly oh they're they're subhuman attitude that you see. Yeah, they, it's definitely a mechanized society. Like they have uh, their, their cities are uh, light up at night and all that stuff. So it's not like they're treated as barbarous third world sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was there. There seems to have been, and he talks about in Angel of the Revolution of Turkey being. Uh, you know, shoot off from Europe, acknowledging that, you know, the Turkish Empire was still going in the late 19th century and still a world power, essentially. Um, and it was, of course, aligned in World War One with Austria-Hungary. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't out of it wasn't completely irrelevant. But uh, yeah, there's there's essentially there they tend to be villainous. I, I would say, but they're treated with a bit more respect. Am I? Does that sound right, Jess? What I'm saying here, how they looked well, at the Muslim it, Empire it's at that true. time. It's um, true. It's interesting that if you compare um, his treatment of Muslims in Angel of the Revolution and Olga Romanoff to his book Valdar the Oftborn, which is a reincarnation fantasy published 1895, where this warrior uh, falls in love way back in the Phoenician time, I think, and, and 
uh, keeps being reborn through time. And at one point, he becomes um, one of the compa companions of Muhammad. And the he he Muhammad and the Muslims are treated very respectfully. And there's one of the things I talk about in in my uh, encyclopedia is that there were Muslims in Victorian England and Christian freethinkers who treated Islam well. And I think it was in Liverpool that there was a surprising uh, Muslim community that was well integrated into Liverpool. And so it's very possible that that was what was on Griffith's mind, the, the real-life Muslims, and how the local, local Britons treated them when he wrote Angel of the Revolution and Siren of the Skies and Valdar the Offborn. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, my, my, my general uh, impression of, you know, writing about the Middle East, you know, of that period was, you know, there was maybe a certain amount of, you know, uh, condescension uh, you know, you get a lot of arabesque fantasy and stuff, but it tended to be, you know, viewed as just another country that wasn't, you know, it's the same with uh, the Far East in China. I mean, you'd get mockery and to a certain degree and a bit of, oh, they're silly customs that aren't like ours, but not the same sort of contempt and, and, and you know, dehumanizing that you get with, uh, you know, with black people and, and to a certain extent with native Americans as well. So it was interesting that that, you know, that was the, the, the European view of, uh, of, of Islam. It, you know, it, it seems to have picked up, <laughs> picked up speed only fairly recently. Sorry to say. Um, I think, uh, oh, um, oh, I wanted to, uh, I, I had actually read, uh, uh, one of Griffith's other books called honeymoon in space. I didn't okay. actually realize it was the same person until recently. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a interesting one, sort of a quaint little um, uh, two newlyweds travel throughout the solar system to different planets at different stages of development. But what I thought was uh, going back to the English chauvinism on Mars, uh, it's, uh, it's the Martians are described as very logical uh -huh. and they speak English, and that's explained by uh, English being the most logical language. I'm not sure if that was supposed to be a joke, or... Uh, Jess, do you have any idea if that was a joke? Um, it, it, it was probably a joke. A am I remembering correctly that it's in Outlaw, uh, Honeymoon in Space, where the two very imperialist protagonists run into a utopia on, I think, Venus, and... Yeah, yeah it was uh, bird people. Yeah, they leave it behind because they don't want to pollute it. Yeah, yeah, that happens. Uh, it's it's like a Garden of Eden thing. They they see themselves as possible snakes in the Garden of Eden, so they leave so they don't, um, like you said, pollute and cause original sin. That's that that's a little bit more observant about you know colonialism than this book is, <laughs> Angel of the Revolution. Um, that's that's kind of interesting. It was certainly, and that's reminding me now of uh, of uh, the the cosmic trilogy, the C.S. Lewis cosmic trilogy, because they had a similar thing happening on Venus, where he discovers the original, uh, you know, the the Garden of Eden playing out again on Venus. Um, okay, but that's anyway. <laughs>
to completely uh, to completely uh, uh, jump to another thing. But that what you're saying there reminds me of that. Uh, anyway, uh, are there any final thoughts, uh, Jess? Did you have anything else you wanted to mention about either of these books? Um, they are. I, I think they they would be decent introductions to Victorian science fiction. Um, they're not. I don't think they're stylistically particularly dated. I mean, there are certainly uh, content issues. But as far as um, readability, just on that score, you could do a lot worse than when, if someone's curious about Victorian science fiction, say, you know, try Griffith. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I felt the prose was a little bit purple, but not... Ex, you know, exceedingly so. It wasn't unreadable. It was, it was, you know. I, I actually they're, thought they're fairly I, long books, but they're yeah. not hard reads. I, I would have said, as Victorian books go, I actually think it was pretty, like it was pretty fast paced and pretty, uh, pretty gripping. It wasn't, you know, it, he does talk a lot about like naval manu- aerial naval maneuvers and like the logistics of the battles, which could get a little bit much for me. But in terms of what he was describing, like it was a you know, it was a gripping story. It gets its hooks into you and drags you along. It's not, uh, you know, some some books of the same era are a little bit, uh, a little bit more languid, and this 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 was pretty uh, compelling. I thought as a for a nineteenth century. I felt it definitely read as something that was serialized um, because yeah. there's lots of cliffhangers and stuff. So right, it, it it reads like something that was sort of put out, you know, made up as like he probably had an endpoint in in mind, but. Uh, it's like um, there's elements that just sort of come out of nowhere and are dropped, like uh, and sometimes picked up in the sequel. But like area, right? Um, well, area is uh, area is a, a bit of a plot point because it's their base, their home base, essentially. Yeah, but it's everything. it's really expanded upon in the sequel. But right. yeah, it, it struck me as kind of out of nowhere when I was reading it the first time. I mean, you could argue that the whole thing with uh, the the uh, which what's the character's name who betrays them uh, in their attempt to seize America. Um, oh, Roboroff. Uh, Ro- Roboroff, yeah. He, I mean, that in some ways seemed like a bit of a plot diversion. It didn't really go anywhere incredibly important, but uh, you know, it was. And, and also, um, uh, Nat has his um, ability to freeze people. Um, like he has uh, sort of psychic powers; yeah. he can stop somebody in their tracks. That's that. That kind of came out of nowhere, and it's not really yeah. explained. Well, we we d- we did when we talked about. Uh, in the Empire of Crime episode, where we talked about, uh, you know, I, that almost seems like it's a bit going into that as well, where there, where you'd have a, a villain who could mesmerize people just through the force of their personality. Uh, but again, he wasn't a villain. You don't often <laughs> see it with heroes, though. Yeah, it, it is it is strange in that regard. Um, you know, he's got all the signifiers of a villain, and yet he's a good guy. <laughs> so, like I say, I, I almost wonder if... Jess, would it be crazy of me to suggest that he thought he was going to do that and make Natas go bad, and then he changed his mind partway through writing? Or uh, I no, I, I tend. My impression is that he intended Natas and Tara to be the good guys all the way through. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's yeah. He's, but you 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 know what I'm saying though, right? He has a very villainous. Right uh, aspect to it when he's introduced and everything, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, he. I, I think part of that is that the signifiers became signifiers in the twentieth century, and right. for the Victorians, it was, um, 
they they didn't really connote what they later came to connote. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, he reads very Bond villain, but like you said, that's a thing that came later. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and of course, just the fact that you know someone who's trying to overthrow it would depend on if you're a socialist that someone who's trying to overthrow the order of the world and set up a new utopia is good guy. Whereas if you're you know <laughs> if you if you were in bed with the powers that be, that would seem villainous, right? So that would be that would be portrayed as more sinister. Anyway, uh, so we've we're uh, I think we're we're hitting the end of this uh, right now. Um, Jess, did you want to plug your uh, your book again? <laughs> sure. Uh, I've got a book coming out. The encyc- second edition of the Encyclopedia of Fantastic Victoriana should be out, uh, available as an ebook on Amazon in a few weeks. Uh, it, it is about 2,300 pages long, and it is the best uh, ebook introduction to the genres of Victorian popular literature that you'll ever be able to buy for 1995. <laughs> I agree. It's really cool. And uh, Phil, you want to talk? Maybe plug the Apex Society. Okay. Yeah, I have a, a web comic uh, uh, called the, like you said, the Apex Society. Um, I also, um, uh, we both have Patreons. Um, right. Ian Adam. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can uh, get early art for comic stuff and. Um, uh, early episodes of this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get to listen to it a week early. And I'll say it's not as directly related to the subject matter, but uh, my website, Phantasmic Tales, with a PH, uh, Phantasmic Tales, uh, is uh, the website's been refurbished, and you can uh, purchase my uh, my comics there, as well as uh, the anthology Strange Romance, which Phil is in, and which I edit. Um, so that's it for another edition of What Mad Universe. Uh, we are the new masters of the air, Philip Rice and Adam Prosser. As always, we pay obeisance to our special guest, the secret master of the Brotherhood of Freedom, Jess Nevins. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, special thanks to uh, our web hoster, producer, and engineer, Alex Ross, broadcasting from a secret valley in Africa. The What Mad Universe theme song, which will be the anthem of the new international world order, was by Jack Furick. So until such time as the scourge of war is violently purged from the earth and all men can live together in harmony, we'll see you next time.